I know this may sound like a strange pairing, uh, st statistical studies and miracles, uh, but there's a reason I'm pairing them together here, and, and that is uh, recent surveys that have been done that show that uh, though uh, across the board in uh, North America these days, uh, folks, it is said, are in, in increasing numbers turning away from organized traditional religion, traditional faith, in particular the church. Uh, nonetheless, uh, as far as those who are certain in their belief in miracles, that is growing. Uh, it's rather interesting. 22%, a 22% growth over the last 20 years. 22% more over the last 20 years, the American, North American populace believe that such supernatural events are actually possible. In fact, I mean, roughly some 55% of the American populace believes that miracles are real. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people to agree on, on that rather important point. But here's the funny thing. When you start to drill down into the data, once you get past that initial point of agreement, that's when things start to splinter. And there's a lot of disagreement and a lot of confusion uh, past that. It reminded me somewhat um, of, a, of a line from Star Wars, The Force Awakens, when Han Solo has to, to say to Finn to straighten him out a little bit, that's not how the Force works. Well, there's a lot of confusion on what the miracles are, what, where, what the, the source would be, what the purpose would be, what are they even possible, all, all of that. There's much confusion on that point here today. And with that in mind, I'd ask you to turn to where we need to go to get straightened out. And that is the Scriptures, uh, and in particular, Matthew's Gospel. We are moving on in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And if you're trying to find the book of Matthew, that's the, the first book in the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. We're in Matthew, Matthew 8. Uh, that's right after the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of God. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will. Be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask that you would help us to, to see, that you would help us to grasp what is happening here in this account, um, what was happening that day uh, when those things were taking place, um, what was the intention, what was the meaning, the significance, all, all of that for then and for now, uh, for those people there and for us here, um, where faith needs to be strengthened, we ask for that, where it's for faith needs to be born, we ask for that. Um, we ask that you would be speaking now through your spirit by your word, and we pray in your name. Amen. All right, let's begin with this question. Is this even plausible? Is this even possible? 
something like what we just, just read here. A lot of people will answer like this. That can't happen. Miracles are impossible. Therefore, what you just read can't happen. And also, oh, by the way, therefore, this account and everything around it and in it and about it is without credit. It is incredible because the miracle is impossible, so therefore, we can't believe any of this. It's untrustworthy. That's what some would say. I, I would just, I would want to, say, shall I say, launch my objection to the objections. I would say, who says? Who says what you say is true? Let me just back this up and explain what I mean by this. Oftentimes, that sort of historically, going all the way back to, to David Hume and, and even way before him and, 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 and best-selling authors still today, Bart Ehrman and the, the likes of him, they, such, such objections and objectors are often rather, I don't mean to be unkind, but I'm just going to shoot straight, arrogant. Regarding their views towards ancient people looking down their nose, you know, well, people back then would believe they were simpletons, you see. And also looking down their nose at people of other cultures. Now, we don't like being accused of arrogance, but that's pretty much what that is. I would also say they can come across as rather narrow-minded, operating under an assumption that, well, you've got to understand, you see, that all this world, all of creation, well, it wouldn't be creation, all the universe, the cosmos, is a closed system, you see, like a box, and nothing comes in from the outside because there is nothing on the outside. Well, who says? I mean, that, you understand, that's a statement of faith right there that can't be proven. You can't prove, by the way, that there is no God. And so if, in fact, there is a God, you have to allow for the possibility of miracles. You see? You can't prove that there are no miracles because you can't prove that there isn't a God. And so you have to at least allow for the possibility that, in fact, there are miracles. Arrogance, narrow-mindedness, I would even go so far as to say short-sighted. It can be so short-sighted. It may not mean to be, but it can be. It can be, because in, in the claim and in, in the strong uh, opposition and in the, in, the, in the objection to, to saying that um, uh, such an act, such an event would be a violation of the laws of nature. Now think with me a minute. If God is God, then what we call the laws of nature are really nothing more than observations of how he normally works. And he is certainly free to do something abnormal if he so chooses, if in fact there is a God. Something akin to that, that quote that I read earlier just a little while ago. Uh, so I, I guess, you know, putting, coming back to the question, is this plausible? Is this possible? You have to at least be honest and say, at least maybe, at least perhaps, and I will push forward and say, yes. Yes. In fact, I think we need to push harder than that and say that these stories, these accounts of Jesus' miracles are in fact true. This actually happened. The stories, the accounts, such as we read here, of the miracles of Jesus are in fact true, and Matthew intends for us to understand that they are weighty with significance. 
They are true accounts and weighty, full of, deeply significant. Now you say, well, how so? I'm glad you asked. It's a good question. How are they significant? Three ways, and you see it there in your outline. First, it serves, they, they all the miracles serve this way, but this one in particular serves as, a, as an authentication of the messenger, in this case, Jesus. Secondly, as a demonstration of his character. And thirdly, as an indication of his intentions. Okay? So as an authentication, as a demonstration, and an indication. Okay? Those three. Let's, uh, let's charge into this and take a look at it. So first, can we believe Jesus? That's a reasonable question. Can we believe what he says? Is he actually speaking truth? Can we buy into to this? And this is where you get into the, how this miracle authenticates the messenger. You got, we understand that, that before the crowds that day, there's a looming question uh, there that they are grappling with. And you see it, well, let me just read again verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Down from what mountain? The mountain that he had just been on as he was delivering what we now call today the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5 through 7. That's what's recorded there. Okay, well, what do we read about that at the very end of that account? Verses 28 through 29 of chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And we looked at this a, a few weeks ago. The reason why the crowds are astonished. Because interwoven with everything that Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount about life in the kingdom is the implicit claim, if not explicit claim, that he is in fact the king. And as you read elsewhere, it's pretty clear he's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And the crowds have to be saying, thinking to themselves at this point, whoa, where do you get off saying that? Speaking in this way, where do you get this authority? Who gives you the right to tell us how to live and to speak in such ways? That's the looming question. To that looming question, here comes this miracle, a startling answer. And it's implicit from the start in just how the leper approaches Jesus. How does he approach Jesus? Hey, how you doing? I'm a leper. He kneels. He kneels. How does he address Jesus? By referring to him as Lord. Now, likely the man did and said better than he knew, but for the reader of Matthew's Gospel... It should be a clue. So at the very least, implicitly from the start, we're getting a hint at who this is. And if that's not clear, then you keep reading just a couple more verses. And we have this healing. Jesus heals this man, not with a therapy, not with a treatment. That no, There's nothing complicated about it. He speaks with a word, healed. Not a process, instantaneously. Jesus heals this man. The authentication of the messenger comes with this miracle, which then answers the question, can we believe him? Is he legit? Yes. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. 
Our purpose and meaning in life is in fact found in following Him. All our longings, all our dreams, all our hopes, all our aspirations are ultimately answered in Him. The longing that our souls have to be cleansed and washed of our sin and to be set free from the tyranny of our sin is found if we will but put our hope and trust in Him. All of these bold, audacious, astonishing claims that Jesus makes about Himself, we are learning are actually valid. Because He is authenticating Himself just with this miracle. I am who I said I am. Connect the dots. That's what we need to do here. We need to connect the dots. These accounts, these stories of Jesus' miracles are true, and so therefore that what comes with that is a weighty significance. If nothing else, the authentication of the messenger. But it's not if nothing else, because there's yet more. Not just the authentication of the messenger, but a demonstration of his character. Because there's another question. It's not just can we believe him you know, intellectually, but can I trust him? What will happen if I follow him? You see, I mean, there's a subtle, I know it's a, it sounds like I'm, I'm splitting hairs, but it's an important distinction there. Not just can I believe him, but can I trust him? It's not just a matter of, of, of head knowledge, but heart's faith and trust. Uh, maybe we can unpack it this way, by thinking about what it meant to be a leper. What did it mean in that culture, in those days, to be a leper? Now, I need to understand just something from the outset. The, the, the word here that's translated leprosy in the ancient world it referred to a, a broad spectrum of skin diseases that were horrible, all horrible, and all highly contagious. Okay, um, That's the first thing that ought to be noted. The second thing is how it was regarded. If you had leprosy, you were deemed to be cursed by God. I mean, really, truly. I mean, they, they, God is real, and you've been cursed by Him. And in that, in a Jewish culture, you are ceremonially unclean, and everyone else is forbidden to touch you. So this man is an outcast. He is an outcast. So now let's, that's what it meant to, to... Well, let's think about his suffering now. Beyond the physical, beyond the disability and the deformity, he is a social outcast. All his friends, all his family, he is cut off from. Now, what does that do to you emotionally? You get a hint of that just in the way the man speaks to Jesus. You didn't pick up on it? Lord, if you, if, if you will. You get the sense that the man has spent so long living a life where no one wants to have anything to do with him, he's really not even sure if he will. Not, not if he can, but if he wants to. If he wants to. So that's what it means to touch, that's what it means to be a leper. So with that in mind, now let's think about what it means to touch a leper. What is Jesus demonstrating here about himself? I would say two things. First, in the big picture, the, the, the macro scheme. 
the plan of God, after the, the unfolding of, of all over the course of the unfolding of His plan over the course of centuries, we see now that those ceremonial laws that were put into place through Moses that forbid the people to touch the leper are now done. It's over. They've been fulfilled in the one who is now doing the touching. All that they signified, all that they were about. You see, Jesus doesn't catch the man's defilement. He can't. He makes what is defiled clean. Us. Clean. He makes what is broken healed. What is wounded mended whole. We see that in, in, the, in the large macro scheme, something of the plan of God, what's happening in the touch and of, the, of this leper. But not just that. Not just in the big picture, but just right here. This man. Not just the plan of God, but the heart of God for this man. See, you get the sense, and it's no stretch to say, that this man, even as he's kneeling, even as he's addressing Jesus, is keeping his distance. Jesus is not going to let that stand. He closes the distance between them. And you can almost, if you understand the culture, you can almost hear the gasp, the horrified gasps of the crowd as the teacher lifts up his hand and touches this man. How long had that been since that man had felt that? Jesus didn't have to do it that way. You understand? I mean, the, the one who is present in creation, the agent of creation, who spoke all things into being by the word of his power, doesn't have to touch him. He doesn't have to. He chooses to in communicating to him, the, I know your pain, and I'm healing it. All of it. All of it. I'm going beyond even what you asked for. I'm completely restoring you. And I would argue maybe communicating something to us as well. That's the demonstration. The demonstration of his character, which then gets to answering that question. Not just can I believe him, but can I trust him? Oh my goodness, look at what he's showing us of himself. Which then tells us, you know, I mean, again, this is not just a, a question of, of, of the mind, but the heart, and not just of, of intellectual facts, but of faith. Which, which then tells us that even as, I know I have to move quickly through this, but even as... Um, Things look and feel their worst. We have the certainty and surety that Jesus will bring about the best. We can see that in who he is showing himself to be in this moment. We can see that even as he is leading us on a very hard, painful, difficult path, and we have no idea what, what is coming next? We, we need not doubt this. His love. 
His mercy, His compassion for you. I'm not just talking about the macro, I mean for me, for you. We need not doubt that in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. and you can't go back to sleep. Maybe this will help you. You don't need to doubt whatever else is going on. You don't need to doubt that. The authentication of the messenger, the demonstration of his character, here we see if we will but connect the dots. These stories, of these, these accounts of these miracles are true and deeply significant. But there's one more question, and that is, um, where is this going? What do you intend? What, what does it all mean? And then that then takes us to this last thing, an indication of his intentions. And we see that in, in, in two ways, and one I know I've already touched on, and that is to fulfill the law. I want to come back to that and press on it just a little harder. Verses 3 through 4, Matthew is clearly means for us to get this. Verses 3 through 4, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. There's two commands here. You may have noticed this. There's two commands that Jesus gives to the man. First, a command of silence. Don't just go out there in the streets. Don't go posting this on social media. Just be quiet. The reason being because of the popular uh, longing for a wonder worker. We just want some tricks. We want a show. Right? We want the latest, greatest attraction. Jesus is not interested in serving in that capacity. But there's, it's also more than that. There's also the popular expectation of a political messiah who will, among the people who believe the worst problem were the Romans. If we were just in charge, then that would be better. Failing to understand that their, the tyranny was worse. Their slave masters were a whole, a dictator was a whole lot worse than Caesar. So the Messiah they needed had to be greater than that. Jesus is saying, so, no, 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 no. So the command of silence, and then the next thing, the command of obedience, and that is go to the priest, show yourself, offer the gift as commanded by Moses as a proof to them. A proof of what? A proof of what? That indeed what Jesus said of himself in his teaching, go back and read in Matthew 5, I think it is, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, so in this miracle, show yourself a former leper now cleansed, that in fact, I am in myself everything that the law of Moses, everything that your whole history was pointing to and preparing for is in me as a proof to them. Show them. They need to know. Show them. And in that, as the fulfillment of the law, he has also come to reverse the curse. To reverse the curse. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Right? We just sang that a few minutes ago. The kingdom is advancing. The kingdom is advancing with the coming of the king, the one true king. And I phrase it that way because there is a pretender, a usurper, Satan. And with the coming of the king, the one true king, the boundaries of Satan's territory are being pushed back. Just as surely as the dawn of the sun 
pushes back the shadows of the night is what you see with the coming of this king. And the healing of the leper is a sign of the coming of that king and the kingdom. The blind see, is what Isaiah said. The blind will see, the lame will walk, the leper will be cleansed, and outcasts will be restored. What are his intentions? What are his intentions? Now we can see, we get a glimpse of that. Joy to the world. He comes, what is it, to reign? He comes to push back the effects of the curse far as it is found, which is pretty dang far. So, you know, as far as anything that anyone would want to say about these being, these miracles, such things being violations of the natural order, no, my friend. Those are signs of restoration of the natural order. That's what they are. By the one true king who has come with healing in his hands that everything sad may come untrue. That gives us hope, at least it should, as we anticipate what's coming. What is coming? He's showing us here what's coming and putting on his hand and healing that leper. He is showing us in, a, in, a, in, a, in that moment what is coming in that instant, what is coming in a climactic day, way, one day. That should encourage us. That should give us a sense of anticipation, but not just that. Maybe even a call, a summons to endure. Hang on. Hang on. That king is coming and coming again. Hang on. And then I would also say that it seems that Matthew intends for us to understand not just to give us hope, but a focus to our hope and, and actions even now. You notice that Jesus is not just concerned with the man's soul, but with his body. Not just with his spirit, but with his flesh. And you can even say not just, be, just not just the physical, but the social and emotional aspects of the man's humanity. Which tells us what? Jesus is concerned about the whole person. The whole person. Ought we not as his followers do the same? Absolutely. Connect the dots. These miracles are true. And they are deeply significant. Oh, so deeply significant. I mentioned, I'm going to wrap this up. I mentioned The Force Awakens a few minutes ago. Earlier seen the, fi the film, Finn and Ray are with Han Solo there in the Millennium Falcon. If, you haven't, if I'm giving you a spoiler, I'm sorry. You should have seen it. Um, uh, so they're on the Millennium Falcon. They're talking about where is Luke Skywalker. That's you know, kind of this undercurring theme there throughout the film. Finn, do you know what happened to him? Han, there are a lot of rumors, stories. People who knew him best think he went looking for the lost Jedi Temple. Or the first Jedi Temple. Ray, in awe. The Jedi were real? Han, I used to wonder about that myself. Thought it was a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. A magical power holding together good and evil, the dark side and the light. Crazy thing is, it's true. The Force, the Jedi, all of it. It's all 
true. And you know if you've seen the film, yes, spoiler alert, because they believe it's all real, it's all true, they then move forward. Well, of course they do. That's the way the story works. Friends, we're in a story. We're living in a grander story. A true story. You trace back some of the characters. Folks like hmm, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, John, Paul, Peter, James, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Wilberforce, Spurgeon, Bonhoeffer, Lewis, Schaefer, us, and Jesus, because we're but bit players, Jesus as the main actor. Jesus as the center and focus of it all. Jesus Jesus is the one who has come to live and die in our place, who came to, to give himself as a ransom for many, for all who will but put their hope and their faith and their trust in solely and only in, his, in him and his finished work. The stories of these miracles are true. And they are deeply significant. Authenticating the messenger, demonstrating his character, and indicating his intentions. Oh, that we would read them and embrace them in that way. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, acknowledge from the outset that we want stories like this to be true, but that doesn't make them true. We want them to be true, but indeed they are true because they happened in time and in, and in space. And they, they resonate. We want them to be true because it touches something deep within us. A longing for that authentication and the, that demonstration and that indication. And we ask this morning that the significance of all of this would not be lost on us. That we would not be too quick to move on to the next thing. We, we ask that you'd press this into our hearts that we would believe you and trust you and see what you intend. Press these things into us, we pray. And, and this week, starting this day, this very hour, would you change us accordingly? In your name we pray. Amen. I may ask my fellow elders to join me up front as we are going to join together in the celebration of this Supper. Um, I haven't mentioned this yet today, but of course it's Labor Day weekend. Uh, you know that. Um, if you get to the office tomorrow and no one's there, don't tell anyone. Don't say I didn't tell you. Um, so the history of Labor Day, you know, goes back to the late uh, uh, what 1800s and early 1900s, the labor disputes and, and all of that. And and years ago, the way it was celebrated were were, were um, parades. Actually, I mean, it was a big deal for, for the sake of the worker and the common man and all that stuff. We don't do that so much today. Um, today, it's we celebrate with a barbecue and maybe one last gasp at the pool. Um, and that's fine. But the, the main thing, of course, about Labor Day is rest. That's what this is about in many respects. A rest 
from our labors, from our striving. Not because there's none to be done, but because it's been done. It's already been done. The finished work of Jesus on our behalf. He's done it all, having lived and died in our place. That's what this is representing. That's what this is symbolizing. And in the mystery of His ways, that's what is communicated to the heart of those who takes uh, the bread and the cup in faith and has their hearts refreshed. Uh, let me, uh, if I may read from this text here in, um, from Paul, what we know is in a letter uh, to the church at Corinth, we call it 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, picking up in verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What are we uh, hearing here? What, are we, what is Paul saying here? That what we have here is an opportunity before us all to reflect on what Paul is saying Jesus has done for us and reflect on whether or not we believe that. So I would say if you're here this morning uh, visiting with us today, first, we're so, again, glad that you are here. I do believe you're in a very good place to be wrestling with the claims of Christ and the implications of Christianity. But that said, this is not the time, if, if that's not where you are in your heart's conviction, this is not the time for you to be taking of the sacrament. This is a time to be reflecting on perhaps what's getting in the way of my actually believing that. And if you're here this morning as a professing follower of Christ, but there is in fact some part of your life that you know and you know he knows that you are in willful rebellion, it's pretty clear by what Paul is saying here. Again, you need to let the bread and cup go by and repent and turn back to him. That again is his grace to you, to us, to have this opportunity here this morning to reflect on that, to just sort of stop, because we just don't stop. We just keep going, keep going, keep going. But now he's saying, stop, think, stop. What are you doing? What's going on with your life? What are you treasuring more than me? This is an opportunity for us to reflect. It is also, of course, an opportunity for us to be reminded to be reminded and refreshed in the reality that and it's, it's such a simple thing to say, but so profound, that as surely as the bread was broken, and you're about to hold that in your hand, so too was his body, I mean just broken, for us. And just as surely as you're going to take that cup in your hand and pour it out, you know, drinking it, ingesting it, so too was his blood poured out, his life expended for you. That's a simple thing to say, but it is 
life-changing to the degree we take it in. We're going to be um, first distributing the bread. I'd ask you to, you know, when you get that, go ahead and, and eat it when you're ready. Um, when you get the cup, though, we would ask you to hold that. We're going to do that all together in unison. The rationale behind that being, uh, on the one hand, while we are all individuals with individual stories and bios and everything else, at the same time, it's one hope, one faith, one Lord, one gospel that we have. Uh, there are some texts there in your bulletin. I invite you to uh, read those and meditate over them or the, the music as the worship team is playing here. Um, but let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your mercy to us here in this moment. Uh, thank you. you. You know that we are amnesiacs. We are... Our, the constancy is not in our remembering, but in our forgetting. And, and you know that. You know we are but, but dust. And, and you know our frailties. And so you give us these ongoing reminders of what you've done and the significance of that for us. We pray that you'd press that into us a bit more deeply here now. Amen. Let me add, as the uh, bread is being distributed, you will notice we're doing something different here today. Uh, there is a small container in each one of these trays, and that container contains gluten-free bread. So if that's something that you need, we're just trying to accommodate you there. Thank you. 